Smith, and this is more than one lesson. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. This is the final episode of Halloween Times. I hope everybody made it through okay. I hope you're not too terrified and that you aren't literally scared to death, as they would say in like those old 1930s uh, Universal films. Uh, but uh, today we're going to be talking about M. Night Shyamalan's Split. But before we do that, I wanted to let everybody know that this episode is brought to you by Faith Life TV, which is a new streaming service that features a number of uh, documentaries, lectures, interviews, narrative films, uh, and other things that, uh, that Christian viewers might be interested in. And, uh, I, there's a film, so I was looking through, uh, new additions to the streaming service and there's a film that looked really interesting to me. I watched a few minutes of it and I was kind of impressed. Um, but before I get to that, I should say you might occasionally hear noises in the background. Here's the situation. Listeners know that I am headed to uh, Asia, but before I did that, uh, uh, Jen and I organized somebody to come and clean our house while we were getting ready, and I forgot that she was going to be here today, and so we are recording as she is cleaning uh, rooms around us. So you might occasionally hear like a clanking or, or maybe even a vacuum. We're going to try and work through that. Hopefully it's not too disturbing. Thank you. Look, back to Faith Life TV. Um, so there is this film. It's called, it's, it's a film from the Netherlands. And it is, I will say, it is dubbed, which is a thing I don't normally like, but apparently the director oversaw the dubbing, and in listening to it, it's actually pretty good. Uh, it matches really well, and I'm not sure if the actors did their own dubbing, but like whoever they got, the, act, the performances are quite good. But anyway, so the film is called Storm and Luther's Forbidden Letter. Kind of a clunky title, unless, of course, you're thinking it's like, and eh, it's from the Netherlands. Who knows what they do over there? Um, so I'll give you a brief uh, rundown of, this, of the plot. When his father is arrested for printing a forbidden letter written by controversial reformer Martin Luther, 12-year-old Storm escapes with the original. In a race against time, Storm, Storm tries to save his father from execution and get the letter into safe hands. So I was watching the first few minutes of this, and first off, the production values are shockingly high. You don't expect that with movies that are Christian-themed, but maybe they do things differently in the Netherlands. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a period film, and, you know, they're shooting in the mountains, and they've got, you know, period costumes and stuff, and it looks really good, and the, uh, the reviews are pretty solid. It's a fairly new film, and because it's from the point of view of a kid, I'm not sure if it's actually a movie that is that was made with a younger audience in mind, but I get the impression it was. So listeners, uh, check out Faith Life TV, watch uh, Storm and Luther's Forbidden Letter, and let me know what you think of it, because uh, if I had the time, I would probably watch it myself. As it is, I watched 10 minutes of it, and I thought it was pretty good, um, which, which excites me, because as I've said before, I like what Faith Life is doing, and I like that they are finding these lesser-known films 
from other countries, in fact, and and hosting them on their site. So, uh, and so you, the listener, you can get your your first month of Faith Life TV for free if you go to morethanonelesson.com. Click on the Faith Life TV ad, uh, and then after that, it's only four ninety nine a month, and they're adding new stuff pretty much every day, uh, if not uh, maybe every week. Um, but yeah, so check that out. Uh, and I wanted to thank them again for, for sponsoring us. Uh, I hope that they're okay with us talking about all these spooky movies uh, during Halloween times, including uh, the, the film we'll be talking about today, which again is Split. But before I do that, I'm going to welcome in my uh, today's co-host, Robert Hornack. Robert, how you doing? Hi, Tyler. I'm doing very well. All right. Now, listeners have not heard you in a while. You and I have recorded out of order. Right. Um, but we haven't heard you in a while. Uh, you've been super busy. Uh, you were working on a show for a while. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you're just doing your own writing projects right now. Right. I'm sort of in the, in the waiting period that all people in TV understand. It's yeah. a hiatus. And during the hiatus of a TV show is when everyone that works on it basically is waiting on network, whoever that network might be, mm-hmm. to say, hey, let's do a season two. Right. Well, the show I was working on is Netflix, uh, as a Netflix show, and Netflix is sort of like playing by their own rules. Yeah. And so they don't have to say that there's not, they're not on like a normal network schedule. They're yeah. their own schedule. And so they can wait a year before yeah. they say, hey, let's do another one. Um, meanwhile, everyone's like waiting, trying to find other jobs or not, yeah. hoping that it comes back. Um, so I'm kind of in that no man's land of yeah. looking for work, but half, more than half of me is thinking, well, it's a popular show, probably will be a popular show and if hopefully it finds, we'll come back. If it finds a niche audience, which it will, given what it is, um, yeah, Netflix is not, I mean, I, I have a lot of problems with Netflix and their general model, but what I will say is they're usually pretty generous about like, hey, this show is moderately successful season two time. Sure. Like, and they, and it's usually not, it's not like HBO or, or one of those cable networks where, uh, sometimes years can go by between seasons. This it's when they make the decision, season two is usually a year away. Yeah. Um, unless it was something like stranger things where it was like a year and a half because clearly they're like, Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll rather than the summer, we'll release this in uh, around times. Halloween. So, um, when does this go up? Because maybe the show's already on. Uh, this goes up, I think, the day before the show okay. uh, comes back. Aubrey and I are actually, uh, my wife and I are actually watching season one. Yeah. Season one, uh, again, starting last night, mm. which I guess would have been over a week ago now. So I think uh, w- we should be caught up, and then we can just like roll right into season two. I'm very yeah. excited. Um, I had a lot of problems with season one, just in terms of story and stuff like that. But it's a yeah. fun show because it's... All the, all the recall, the 80s recall and all that kind of stuff is not, at first was something I didn't want to deal with. It's like, why? It was sort of my Super 8 reaction yeah. all over again. It's like, I don't yeah. want someone, you know, co opting the things that I loved so much when I was growing up. Yeah. But, you know, you kind of get, get over that because there are enough uh, other elements of the show that are enjoyable, are engaging, and do pull you in. If Performances, the, especially in the if show. If the characters were only throwbacks. Yeah then I think it would bother me. And the characters are definitely homages to characters we've seen before, mm-hmm. but I think they're played very well. I think they're written very well. Yeah. Like, thankfully there's enough of a story there for me to be involved in. If it was just like this film, ready player one, mm-hmm. everything Spielberg. about that looks, 
I feel like that story is not going to be enough for me to hang my hat on. And it's just going to be, Hey, look at all these things, you know, yep. that's my concern. And based it's on definitely concern and based on like criticism of the book, it's like, I think that's what it's going to be, which is going to bother me. And stranger things right. is not that. Well, I, I kind of warmed up to stranger things after the Duffer brothers. I, I read an interview with them and, and essentially all the problems that I had with it was like, oh, there, look, there's a scene that's like ripped right off of E.T. Mm-hmm. If you ask them, they go, yes, we ripped off a scene from E.T. Yeah. And we wanted to because we love E.T. Um, yeah. But part of me still kind of recoils at that. But at, at the same time, there's such an honesty about that yeah. as opposed to J.J. Abrams and sure. Super 8, which to me, because Spielberg was executive producing that movie, or producing, I think he produced it as well, yeah. um, that movie feels too much like you're getting buddy buddy with the guy who made those original images that you're now yeah. co-opting. And it's like almost like this, the sanction of Spielberg was on that movie yeah. to go ahead and co-opt it for a new generation, which yeah. doesn't work for me. However, the Duffer brothers seem a little bit removed from that. And it's more like fans who just really love the vibe and want to recreate the vibe. Yeah. And this is how you do that by recreating those kinds of scenes or that kind of mood. I, I think just, especially now I watched the second, the first episode, the second time last night, and uh, I loved it a lot more. I, I didn't. Mm-hmm. I thought I would have kind of a wall up still, but I, I'm just I'm sucked in. Not, yeah. not, again, not because of the story so much, but just because of the mood. Yeah. Um, very do, very fun. They do get that right. That's the other thing. Is like if you're going to have a loving homage, perhaps even a rip off, this is how you do it. You do it with tremendous affection while also trying to be true to the story you are telling. Yeah, interesting. And the mood you're telling. Not to like uh, jump the gun too much, but Manhunter watched it again, mm-hmm. and it's got that great. Or is it great uh, synthesized synthesizer score? Yeah, which is very indicative of its time. Yes, um, the it's like that Vangelis thing from aren't they the, are they the ones that did uh, I guess uh, uh, Vangelis did Blade Runner. Blade Runner, that's yeah. what it was. Or no, who who did what did Tangerine Dream do? Or was that they did Thief? It was a big sci-fi movie though. I thought they did. Um, I thought that was Blade Runner. Vangelis did. Vangelis did Chariots of Fire. That's it. Uh, and then I think they also did, uh, I think they also did Blade Runner, but I'm not sure. I'm not positive either, but that, that whole sort of synthesized. Look, it's one of those two. One of the two. <laughs> Obviously. Um, uh, but the fact that I was listening, to, I was watching the movie yesterday and my wife comes in, she says, what are you watching? And I said, Manhunter. And she mm-hmm. said, oh, I haven't seen this. And I said, be prepared because it's very 80s. Yeah. Um, so she watched a little bit of it and we were talking about the soundtrack and the fact that it was so 80s. It was just mm-hmm. this just straight up guy on a synthesizer. Yeah. Um, and she said a very insightful question or she asked a, a very insightful question. She said, do you, and I was kind of praising the music. I said, this is great, isn't it? That music. She said, are you liking that music because it fits this movie? Because because you remember liking it when you first saw it, like in that decade, or is it more a a nostalgia thing? And I had to think about that because I honestly, I I don't really know. And I think part of it is the fact that if you watch something like Manhunter or Blade Runner or any of these movies that have these kind of scores in it, and then you watch like months later, you might watch Stranger Things or something that's trying to yeah. basically re- recapture that kind of feeling by doing it themselves, but with modern technology. Yeah. It sounds like it, but it isn't it. And then you go back to Manhunter, which I did yesterday. There's something visceral mm-hmm. that you know this is the real thing. 
and you and I was saying to myself, and then out loud to her, I love this music. And it was because I, lo- I love it more now that I've seen Stranger Things. Not that Stranger Things yeah. is getting it wrong, per se, but they're, they're not getting it as right as they possibly ever could because it's not the 80s anymore. Well, like, Michael Mann, like, there's always the possibility of, of dating yourself when you use, like, contemporary music and, and that sort of thing, but he was willing to do it. It's a film very much of its time in a lot of ways, and we will talk more about it later as the companion film, but... Um, he picked the music because it's what fi- it's what fit a the style in which he was making the film, and it sounded right to him. Modern filmmakers that are trying to pay tribute to the '80s, they pick it because Michael Mann picked it for some reason. Exactly. Yeah. And even if they make it work, and I think Stranger Things mostly does, um, you know, when you're the one making the decision, it's going to be more organic. Like. He may, he probably shot the film with some of this music in mind, and then picked the music with the visuals in mind. So, like the two do go together. They go um, together, and the fact that so much of the again jumping the, the gun way way too soon, but the fact that one of the themes is dreams, or one of the things that keep coming back to in the movie is themes uh, is dreams. Yeah, um, and that that music might to our ears now and to our guts now say, Oh, mm-hmm. it's, that's so eighties. And that's all you think about it. But at the time it was a relatively new yeah. kind of composition. Yeah. And the, like maybe the previous three or four years to that, was when they started doing that or using synthesizer music for a complete score. And it does feel dreamy. It feels, it, feel, yeah. it kind of pulls you into a different kind of film world when, when you remove the eighties of it, it's more like, this is a new thing. This is kind of a, it's yeah. a new approach to tying a score into the way the main character is thinking. And it's, it's great in that yeah. way as well. And also it takes you back in time, you know, to a, yeah. a different, simpler time of filmmaking, I guess. Was it a simpler time? Hmm. That's, that's worth discussing someday is like, was there ever a simpler time in filmmaking? There's never a simpler time ever. That's kind of true. For, for in any realm of life. Yeah. We got to make movies great again. That's what we got to do. Um, <laughs> but enough politics, because I'm too I'm too tired for it. Amen. Um, so today we are talking about we're not talking about Stranger Things, but uh, I don't know exactly the scheduling. But I will say that over at the Fear of God, they are devoting, I believe, four weeks Whoa. to Stranger Things. Good for you. Two weeks for season two. And Nathan. Sorry. Two weeks for season one. Two weeks for season two. Wow. Nice. So nice. They're going all in on Stranger Things, and you know what? Good for them. I appreciate that. Um, but, uh, but what we're talking about is M night Shyamalan's split, uh, a film that I, I went to a, a critic screening and I was very happy I did. Um, because within a week of the film being released, like there are big spoilers out there and, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but we should definitely say spoilers here. If anyone's ever has not seen this movie and have any kind of inkling of a plan to see it at some point, yeah. please do not listen to this just yeah. yet. Uh, I will say the spoilers don't actually have that much to do with the story. Mm, they have to do with other things. Sure. Um, and so, and even if I say the other things that they are, that they spoil, that itself is, is a spoiler. Yeah, don't, so, don't, don't go any further. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, you know, for the last couple of, for the last three years or so, there's been kind of this reemergence of M. Night Shyamalan. I remember really liking The Visit. I think we did an episode about that last year, uh, maybe the year before, I don't remember. But, um, and, you know, it was him doing a found footage movie and worked pretty well, I think, sure. in a lot of ways. 
Um, the twist was obvious, but it still felt kind of organic and earned. I'm um, stupid. I didn't get it till it happened. Oh, really? I really didn't. I'm, I, I, when it happened, I was like, wait a minute. What? Well, I look, just wasn't thinking. It's like so obvious. Yeah. Well, it's not my place to call you stupid, but I'm <laughs> glad somebody did, um, even if it's you. But it's uh, typically me. But yeah, it's and that's the thing is like if it was if I say this if it was my first M Night Shyamalan film and I didn't know to expect a twist, right. I might not have been looking for one. Right. Um, and certain things are telegraphed, but not super obviously. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think the twist is earned a little bit more. Um, and I think the acting is really good. And so like it just felt like oh this feels minor, but it does feel like a return a bit of a return to form, especially like the way he used humor mm-hmm. uh, and. Split is not that humorous of a film, and at times the the structure of it is a bit all over the place. But it definitely, you know, when we think of M. Night Shyamalan, we think of a guy who is himself heavily influenced by past filmmakers. Sure. And for a number of reasons, there's a lot of Hitchcock in Split. Mm-hmm. Um, and But my biggest, aside from the acting, which we'll get to, my biggest compliment to Split is that he... Shyamalan very effectively makes me forget that there is only one antagonist. You know, like there's these multiple, you know, this one guy has multiple personalities and he's holding these women, you know, not hostage. He's just, you know, holding them captive and they're trying to get away. And then we see one of the personalities like at a subway station and we just think like, oh man, someone's going to hear him. Someone's going to hear. No, no one's going to hear them. Because there's only one physical presence. Exactly. And the fact that it's it's not unlike when uh, when I watched Castaway and Tom Hanks is on the, the raft and at one point he, he calls out for Wilson. And I'm like, oh man, Wilson's not responding. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. Hang on. Wilson can't respond as he is a volleyball. <laughs> but it speaks to the commitment in this case, in that case, on the part of the actor that he was expecting a response and thus so am I. And in this, in this regard, like they so effectively set up, it's a function of James McAvoy's acting, but also the way it is structured from Mm -hmm. an editorial standpoint, they so effectively set this up that it makes me forget that no, the actual fact of the story is that no one's going to hear these girls trying to get away at least not until this guy leaves the subway right. station and comes back yeah i it was uh i watched for the second time mm-hmm. uh this morning actually and it wasn't till close to the end it's not like it's a thing that like is some sort of like bombshell revelation in my mind not to that level but i sort of realized for the first time oh my gosh there's really only five characters in this entire movie mm-hmm. i mean there's more characters if you consider if you you know, divide up McAvoy's performance. Right. But there's only five characters in the middle, only five main yeah. actors. There's a couple of bit parts here and there, but right. they are negligible, including Shyamalan's. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's really remarkable that your, your attention is held in a feature film yeah. that runs two hours with five people and just like, you know, shuffling scenes together with only those five people. And yeah. he's smart to, uh, at some point to divide up the girls yeah. Um, this is sort of a writing thing. It's like at some point he was like, I have too many, I need to be able to go to different rooms at some point because it's going to get a little bit too tedious, monotonous and predictable Yeah. or more so than it is. Um, if I don't not necessarily give us more characters, but put the characters in different places. And so he divides the three girls in three different rooms at a certain point. They're still talking to each other. 
and they're still essentially the same because they're still captive in the same building, mm -hmm. but it's a different, it just opens it up some more. And that's, that was very smart. But the point is that I fully agree with you. That it's amazing how well he dealt with only, uh, only a five character script. It's really remarkable. Yeah. And it's, uh, like officially five character script, but he had to write for many more mm -hmm. and those characters, you know, the personalities all had to seem very distinct from one another. And while I think, you know, the character of Hedwig, which is the kid, I think he writes him a little bit too obviously as a kid. That's acceptable to me because it's not an actual kid. Mm -hmm. It is a, uh, pardon me, a crazy man's version of a kid in his mind. Is crazy he, the, uh, the the correct term? I was going to say insane. That's even more clinical. Which is how good. about nuts? Let's say nuts. I like nuts. Wait a minute. <laughs> no, because uh, I don't think he's officially. I don't think he's like schizophrenic. I mean, like schizophrenic is often associated with multiple personalities, but they're not the same thing. Right. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, like you know, Dennis, Patricia, Hedwig, the Beast, and then Kevin, who is the actual which is the name of the actual guy, the original all these, person. Um, they are, they're all distinct and, and they have contentious attitudes towards one another. And, and I like that we also get, uh, we get glimpses of the other personalities that aren't nearly as aggressive. Is there another movie that deals with the subject where, whether it's a comedy or a drama, whatever, where the care, the, the subdivided personalities know about each other. I found that found that interesting. I didn't think about it until this viewing that it, it almost feels like a device in order to get the get the story going. That they have to know that, or at some point, Doctor Fletcher would have advised him. Indeed, you are not just you; you are these other people too. Right. And at some point, he accepted this. Um, I mean, we don't get any of that. That's not in any of the backstory that's given to us. Right. But, but it made me wonder. It seems like the norm in this kind of movie is for them not to know. They basically just blank out. It's like the where it's like a werewolf story, yeah. Where they they come back from some event that they don't even remember. Sure. And in this case, he doesn't remember either, but he still knows that someone else is out there doing things, and he's accepted the fact that there could be any number of people that are sort of acting on his behalf, whoever he is at that point, or she is at that point. Uh, I do haven't. I've not seen Sybil, and I know for a long time that was you know the gold standard of like multiple personality mm -hmm. movies. Um, and then of course there's primal fear, but the character's faking it spoilers. Uh, <laughs> and then, then there's like that movie identity, which it is, I'm spoiling a lot of stuff here. Multiple personality movies tend to have a lot of spoilers in them. Um, but, yeah. uh, in identity, like you're seeing like all these characters at this dilapidated hotel and they're, uh, and they're getting mm. killed off one by one. And then it turns out that all those characters are actually personalities inside ah. the head. Well, I, I didn't see that one either. And I was yeah. going to today. So, but never mind. Oh boy. Um, it's still pretty, it, it's a really great, uh, exercise in like atmosphere. And yeah. the, the twist is kind of silly, but it also helps you to appreciate. Sure. Uh, so like. Then there's Fight Club. Then which, there's Fight Club. Which um, uh, we don't even know until the end. Yeah, that's Which is true. clever. Um, so yeah, but I'm not sure if the actual... I don't, know if, I don't know if any of these films are psychologically accurate. I'd be willing to say <laughs> yeah. they're not. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and so there, there's a lot that I like about this movie. And I'll say this. When I saw the trailer, I thought this thing is going to be pure schlock. Which, yeah, by the way... It is kind of schlock. I, I skipped it at the theater because I, I totally, even though people are kind of praising the spoilers, I'm going to say spoilers again, mm -hmm. 
spoilers. There were spoilers that uh, people were trying to avoid talking about, but that apparently was a great twist of some kind. Yeah. And so that made me in, interested, but I was like, I've been burned by Shyamalan too many times yeah. in like the last 10 years that that's not nearly enough to get me. So we rented it from the red box or something and then yeah. watched it like six months ago. And I'll, I'll be honest, there's, there's like a, this is not Shyamalan's doing. Well, it is, uh, there's there's an extra layer of suspense to any Shyamalan movie because it's like oh is it gonna when is it gonna screw up yeah <laughs> and it's it's I want it to be good every time and uh, the visit I was so nervous going into it I heard people say it was oh it's a return to form like yeah. you said uh, I saw that in a, a couple of other reviews I was like hmm maybe but you're like you're on pins and needles yeah. like is this gonna be as awful as I think it's gonna be because I saw expectations for him are so low, for for a while were so low yep. that anything that even resembled a return to form would be viewed as like a triumph. Sure, so, you know. Well, even a uh, C plus would be considered great. Obviously, the happening was a low point. I didn't see it. I recommend it. Here's why I recommend it: is yeah. because, not because oh, it's so bad, it's good, but it is so fascinatingly is that a word? Sure. Um, bad. It, it, the every single scene has multiple poor choices and the way it's meted out in the movie is almost like it's on purpose. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you're being hoodwinked and it's like F for fake or something. Oh. And, and so it's not because then when you watch the, watch the uh, behind the scenes stuff and he's talking about, well, I wanted to make a movie that was an homage to, I wanted to make the, the best B movie ever made. And you're going, well, he's sort of shellacking the yeah. truth a little bit in these post, you know, review um, discussions about the movie. It's just a bad movie, but it's, it's, it's interesting. It's just so interesting how it's bad. Mm -hmm. What does Ebert say? It's like, it's not what the movie's about. It's how it's about it. Yeah. Well, this movie, the happening is about how bad it's bad. That makes it interesting. That's the thing is like, even when he made, I mean, I, did I hate Lady in the Water? Yes, I I did. did. Um, And yet, I have tremendous respect for it. I always have respect for his films because I don't think he does anything haphazardly. I don't think there's an ounce of cynicism in him. Mm. I don't think he makes something because it's expected of him. I think he does stuff that he finds interesting, and sometimes it is a complete misfire. Um, Last Airbender. Of that's not his. I'll, yeah, I'll put like After Earth and Last Airbender aside because I think he was kind of a director for hire. I think he co-wrote uh, After Earth, uh, but I think... The studio came up with this. I think Will Smith came up with it, and he needed a vehicle for his son. So, like, let's get let's get them. Like, but everything about Airbender is bad. Yeah, and <sighs> and it sounds like that was going to be bad from the get go, and that no director was going to fix that. And yeah. I think he was probably a little bit hamstrung with what he was able to do with it. Um, yeah. But like, when a project is written by him, when it originates with him, uh, I think uh, even when it's bad. At least it's interesting. There's Devil. Remember Devil? Which he produced. Produced, didn't yeah. write or direct it as far as right. I know. But it definitely has a Shyamalan feel in that it you yeah. kind of, you continually expect some sort of twist. Yeah. And I don't remember if there was or not now. It's been a while. But it, it's a gimmick movie. It's kind of like a telephone booth movie where it's like how, yeah. or, or even. Or Lifeboat. Or we talked about on this show, um, uh, the guy in the car, British movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Going back. Lock. Lock. That's a great example of mm-hmm. of that device where let's just keep a character, one character, in a place yeah. for ninety minutes and see if it works. And it does in that movie, uh, wonderfully. But uh, in Devil, maybe not so much. It's entertaining to a point, but it's I think it's like seventy five minutes or eighty minutes long. So That's it's as like, long as it should be. It's okay, yeah. you know. Um, but that, it almost feels like that was his 
uh, getting his feet wet and that sort of thing again. And then came the visit, sure. which he wrote and direct, directed, and it was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely not as bad as any of his worst movies. Yeah. And then came this, which is, I would say, uh, as re- a return to form as you could expect, given yeah. what's happened in the last 10 years. I think it's very, I think it's effective. Um, I think it's entertaining. I'm on the edge of my seat uh, for a good portion of it. I'm I'm interested in what happens to the characters, and like that's kind of the most you can ask of of a film. Even if I do think it is a ki- like when I say schlock, then like yes, it takes complex things and reduces them for the sake of enter for the sake of entertainment, but also it, it's a bit exploitative at times. Sure. Like there's no reason those girls need to be in their underwear eventually, of course, except to show except to set up that one of them is not. Uh, so that when she eventually reveals mm-hmm. her body and you see that it's heavily scarred and stuff like that, it's like, okay, that's a reveal. It's not so much a twist, but it's a reveal um, to another character. Then it's like, okay, I, I, I get it now, but even then I don't think that was necessary. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and what I will say, so I'll mention the the twist or I guess it's another reveal. Um, so the very last, again, I went to a critic screening and critics tend not to be very responsive to stuff like this, mm-hmm. especially when they get even the slightest whiff of manipulation. Sure. Um, so it is revealed that like, okay, so these characters, you've got your Patricia, your Dennis, your Hedwig and the beast. All right. There are 23 personalities, but these four are the ones that are dedicated. Dennis, did you say Dennis? Dennis? Yes. Barry, um, Barry. You didn't say Barry. Which one is Barry? Barry's the, uh, sort of in, the clothing designer. Yeah, but I don't think he's on board with them. I think he tries to keep That's them at true. bay. I'm sorry, I didn't know what you were going to say. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, they're the ones that are like they call themselves the horde, mm-hmm. and it's these these four personalities that are kind of the misfits in the 23 personality community. Um, but then they just gain power over the body of Kevin, and each one of them kind of contributes a different thing to it, and. So it's like, okay, they're called the Horde, where they're separate things, but they're all one thing as well. And then when it is revealed that, like, oh, they're still out there, like Kevin is not caught, uh, or the Horde is not caught. Um, and then it, and then so we cut to a diner, and people are watching this story on the news, and someone said, oh, this reminds me. And I had, and like, I had, I didn't have quite the f- idea of where it was going, but like, when someone's like, this reminds me, I was like, I, I think I know what it reminds them of. And they yeah. bring up like this weird guy in a wheelchair. What was his name? And then there's Bruce Willis who says his name was Mr. Glass. And it's like, bum, okay, bum, bum. yeah, here's why that excites me. Mm-hmm. So ba- basically it shows that this is, it's not a sequel. It is in the universe of Unbreakable. Here's why that is exciting to me. Oh, and I'll say theater went nuts. Uh, and again, these are critics. Now, everyone, we all had a plus one, and I'm sure the plus ones were very excited, but the critics were as well. They were like, oh, like, <laughs> um, because Unbreakable was an original story from M. Night Shyamalan, and he loves superhero movies. So, like, this is going to be mine. It's going to be my superhero origin story. And he seemed to be content to just kind of leave it at that. Sure. It was kind of a fun little thing. Well, since then, the idea of the cinematic universe has come along. Hmm. And I like that he's going to do his own cinematic, his own superhero cinematic universe that's completely original. Yeah, I like you've that got too. Your, you've got your main character, you get, uh, Bruce Willis, then you've got Mr. Glass. Now you have the Horde, who's another great enemy. 
you know, uh, for, for Bruce Willis's character. And so like, I really hope he just commits to this for 10 years and some of them will be good. Some of them will be bad. I don't care. It's neat to me. I'll take two more. Well, the truth is we, we have sort of the origin story of, uh, glass, yeah. And Bruce Willis in the same movie. So you could actually wrap it up probably in one movie. And wouldn't sure. that make a fine trilogy? Except I want more villains. That's the thing. And I want okay. and, and I want one or two allies. I'll take five. Let's Maybe say McAvoy five is movies. your mini enemies. I guess that's true. But it's thinking in comic book terms, the idea of like, you know, what is, does Bruce Willis's character have a name? Is he just called security because he wears that security th- that... I mean, like, a, did the press give him a name or something yeah. like that? I don't recall. I don't recall either. I've only seen the film once in theaters. So Surely it's been a they did, because, I mean, there's Mr. Ice. Now there's the Horde. Mr. Surely, Glass. Mr. Glass, sorry. Yes. Would I say Ice? Yeah. Oh, Mr. Ice. I like that, too. Is that Batman Returns or something crazy? That's Mr. Freeze. That's Mr. right. Mr. Freeze. Um, different type Oof. of character than Mr. Glass. But, um, but I do... Uh, but, like, imagine a comic book that says, you know, let's say the character's name is Security. It's like... In this issue, security versus the horde, mm-hmm. you know, and that's one issue. So it's not, it's not security versus Patricia, you know, <laughs> it's not that. Bury the interior decorator. Right. You know, whatever. It has to be all of them <clears throat> working <throat> together and sure. each of them, like the beast is like the really powerful one. Dennis is the insanely organized one that can pull things off. Patricia's kind of the mastermind. Yeah. Uh, Hedwig, not really sure what he can, what he can do, but He'll I'm bring sure the toys. Can, yeah, exactly. Um, By the so, way, I think it was the press that gave him the name The Horde. It was We didn't hear that until that broadcast in the diner. I do think, you know what, I, I was looking at the memorable quotes, and I believe um, Kevin at one point oh. says, The Horde keeps obsessing about the ones who haven't suffered. This would have so been toward the end of the movie, then, because we don't hear Kevin until right. well into like Act 3, even, I think. Yeah, I don't think they're given that label until later on in the film, but it is. I but the press, I think, Picks it up, yeah. but uh, but I don't think they're the ones that they'll label him that. Um, so I'm I'm excited about it. Sure. He could completely fumble the ball. It's oh, not unheard boy. of for don't, him to do don't it. Don't say it. But because uh, I'm excited too. Honestly, uh, Unbreakable, um, <clears throat> I think might be my favorite Shyamalan movie. Hmm. Watched it several times. There's several moments in the movie where I just cringe. The scene where the kid grabs a gun in the kitchen to prove that he's a superhero. It's pretty rough. It's not that it's rough. Like in real life, that would be rough, but the way it's shot and the, the acting of the kid and just the reaction and everything about it feels yeah. way off to me. It's like, it's like overkill to make the point for the story that's been told up to that point. Admittedly, I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember that's that scene being very, I mean, obviously I know he's not going to shoot his father, but I also thought like, maybe, uh, I don't think the father's going to die, but yeah. the kid could still shoot him. Who knows? No, but I, I just, I love I, in the theater watching it and realizing sort of it washing over me. Oh my gosh, this is, this is an origin story for a superhero. Cause I didn't know that going in. Yeah. It was just, it was this sort of, uh, lift sort of feeling. It's like, ah, oh, I'm in the hands of a very smart filmmaker. Yeah. And I'd already, you know, I love did science come before or after, I after, think, so Unbreakable was second. Yeah. I, I loved uh, Sixth Sense. Mm-hmm. I've seen it like three times. I've only seen that once as well. I've seen Signs many times, but I've only seen hmm. Sixth Sense and Unbreakable once each opening day. Why? I mean, why have you not gone back? Uh, I want to. I really do. And, but for some reason, I'll say this. I'm often more in the mood to watch Unbreakable, but I still haven't. I haven't pulled that trigger yet. And I know I need to. But I guess there's also the possibility that maybe they're not as good as I remember. They're not. Okay. Um, 
but they are still fascinating, especially now. I think it's be a lot more fun watching it now, wouldn't mm -hmm. you say? Probably, um, yes. Knowing what's coming in this movie. Yeah. Um, a little story. Do you mind if I tell you a little sure. story that sort of pats myself on the back? Oh, okay, yeah. <clears throat> so Aubrey and I, again, my wife, we got it out of the red box. Enough good things had been said. Let's give it a shot. We'd seen the visit. We liked it. So we're sitting there, and I promise you it was 37 minutes into it because I marked time. Um, enough things had been said by several characters. I wrote something down on a piece of paper. I folded it and put it on the coffee table. <laughs> and she saw me do that, but she didn't ask. So afterwards, after the big reveal, we're both like, oh, yeah, cool. Uh, we're talking like 10 minutes. Seriously, we're talking about this movie, a Shyamalan movie for 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, and I just kind of pointed at the piece of paper that I'd folded up. I said, look at that. And I wrote, I had written down the time and something akin to... This is Bruce Willis's bad guy from Unbreakable. Mm. And she looked at it, she looked at me, and suddenly it was like, it was tantamount to like renewing our vows. She was so impressed, yeah. <laughs> impressed by this moment. And so was I, honestly. Cause, but enough things have been said by Fletcher, especially in that conference scene where she's online. Yes. That's yes. where I, I, I got the hint, the, the major hint. I didn't know. No one can know. No one can predict the end of a movie. Yeah. But there were enough things being said about um, uh, uh, reconstituting your your flesh or yeah. uh, becoming the most powerful person you can be or something. It was just, phrases along those lines, I was like, wait a minute. And I hadn't read anything. Yeah. I knew because of Shyamalan there was a twist and the twist itself, the fact of the twist was in the, in the press all over the place. So I knew that there was something. So I think my mind was geared to be looking for that anyway, yeah. as you are with any Shyamalan movie. But... Uh, but I was very proud of myself in that moment. Mm -hmm. I, I just, it was, it, so what, what the movie became for me after that point, after I had that hunch, up to minute 37, it was all about, is, is Shyamalan going to screw this up again? Right. Um, like he's done so many times in the last 10 years. Uh, but it became uh, more, am, am I right? Yeah. And so I was seeing things from that point on that, was, that were enjoyable, yeah. not in a, is Shyamalan screwing up way, but is, or he's such an idiot for, <laughs> right. for like, showing his hands too soon. It wasn't like that at all. It was more like I'm in the hands of like a, a real craftsman who's yeah. leading me to this thing that may be true about the story. Or, Would you have been disappointed if that weren't the case? Because then you're just seeing stuff no, that absolutely. isn't actually there. And that was another point of conversation with Aubrey yeah. and I was like, I, if it had not become what I thought it was going to become, which I think is such a brilliant idea, yeah. I will be disappointed. I'm like, I should write movies for Hollywood because if it's, if it just becomes what it was, which he's on the loose or something, it's just some open-ended other movie yeah. not connected to um, Unbreakable, then it feels, it would feel completely like a missed opportunity. I definitely know what you mean there because like when it, when it's like, okay, the horde has gotten loose and, and I just thought like, okay, is this, it's like, cause I don't think this can warrant a sequel on its own. Hmm. So are they just leaving it open-ended right. with no, with no expectation of a sequel? It's like, oh, he's still out there at the end. It's like, okay, well, that it's, seems it's like, like an odd one choice. one of those, like, 50s movies, like a monster movie where it yeah. ends with a, the, the end, end question mark. mark. Yeah. Uh, it could be that. And I thought, like, if it's that, then, you know, whatever. Who cares? Yeah. Like, are they going to make another movie with just this character doing something? And it's like, you can do that if you change genres. Mm -hmm. If you'd go from horror suspense to superhero... This character, you can absolutely bring this character back. You know, it, it, you saying that, um, switching genres actually points to something I hadn't thought of to this point, And that is, 
Uh, Unbreakable doesn't feel like a horror film. If you were to watch these as a trilogy and you watched, yeah. the first one just feels like a, almost like a domestic drama that happens to morph into yeah. a superhero movie because of what he's understanding about himself. Yeah. Um, this one is clearly drawing on tropes of the horror film, yeah. like from minute one. And I, I wonder what it would be like to watch them back to back, especially if there's a third, yeah. more superhero-y third installment. Um, I wonder what it would be like just to sit and watch all three, like in a day. Yeah. With a third one, I don't think he can hide it anymore. He can, no. You know, I think no. he has to just full on just go into the superhero mode. No, but I, I have to, uh, I, I just have to reiterate that I, I really think that he, he nailed this movie. Yeah. And it's, it's not that, it, I remember watching it today again and thinking to myself, I actually, this feels vid angel but I was actually fast forwarding through parts of it because I knew where it was going. And I think I'll it, allow it because you've seen it before. And good. it wasn't because like, I don't think this is necessary. I'm moving on. Right. It's like, well, hey, that, I got to talk that, about that this. That is the point. I don't think this is necessary. Some parts of that felt repetitive. Like, um, he, I think he went back to Fletcher's office as Barry, like maybe three times. And I'm like, Oh, I yeah. don't know that we need more hashing of that character. Right. Um, for us to understand what's going on vis-a-vis the conflict with the other personalities. And so in a sense, it kind of was a bit angelly. It's like, I don't know that this. Yeah. But the only way you know that is because you've seen it before. If you decide ahead of time, I would like to filter out, uh, more than one scene at the, at the, you've really thought this through, haven't you, Tyler? Yes. (laughs) I know you have. A lot. I was talking about it to somebody on Facebook today. I saw That's why I brought it up actually, because I saw it just this morning, (laughs) which was now what, weeks ago. Um, but no, the the movie feels uh, slightly, can can a movie be slightly interminable? But it felt slightly interminable sure. watching it this morning because I knew where it was going. And right. it, it just sort of revealed how kind of repetitious some of the stuff was. Um, it didn't need to be two hours is, is my uh, ultimate That feeling. I definitely agree with. Um, and I'll say this, that, um, you know, something like Signs, you know, there's kind of a twist there at the end and same with Sixth Sense or, or Unbreakable. But I feel like when you create but you can return to them over and over because he has, because it's not only about the story and about the reveal. It is also about the mood and the tone. And I think with those films, he absolutely creates a tone. This one, not really. There can be like, there can be a tone created between characters in a certain type of scene, but the overall film doesn't really have that. Um, and especially anytime we go to the psychiatrist's office, even though I like that character, I think we go there like one too many times and it's just like, okay, you have established what you are trying to establish. Maybe you're just trying to have us spend more time with the psychiatrist character. That's possible. Um, oh yeah, that's totally fine. I I like that character. I like Betty Buckley as that character. Yeah. I think she, I think she does a very good job, but at the same time, it does feel like like, are you trying to pad out the runtime? Because hmm. this would be perfectly acceptable at 95 to 100 minutes. Totally. Um, but at the same time, I also recognize, and this is where I will uh, make us sound really elitist and terrible. I'd say you and I are more savvy moviegoers. And I think hmm. we, it's like, I think we might, and I think probably our listeners are as well. Like, we know where a director is headed, especially if it's a mainstream film. It's like, okay, I see where you're, where you're going with this. Not from a, not from a twist standpoint, but from mm-hmm. a, like, okay, we need to spend more time with this character. So it will mean more when she eventually dies. Got it. Um, Fascinating that, that Manhunter is actually only 95 minutes and it could, is it that short? It could stand to be two hours. No question. Yeah. Because there's so much 
to talk about in that movie yeah. and so much to go up. You could stand and uh, I could just sit and watch William Peters, Peterson thinking about something for another yeah. 30 seconds per scene and I'd be entertained. Uh, I never read the book Red Dragon. By all accounts, it's great. And mm-hmm. I hear that everything after that, including Silence of the Lambs, is subpar. But like with mm-hmm. Red Dragon, he really did something special. And knowing that the the show Hannibal was based primarily on Red Dragon, not merely as far as characters, but also as far as tone, I'm intrigued to to read it, but it also sounds like it'd be really oppressively terrifying. Right. Um but uh, but yeah, so Split is not a perfect film. Um, it's a film that I think in some ways could reward multiple viewings, but in other ways, not. Like some of those scenes, when you when you know when you have a good handle on why they're there, you're like all right, okay. It's it to me. It's like watching the Avengers. Uh, <laughs> I love the Avengers. I've watched it several times. I own it. It's a it was a, a a smart decision on my part. I got a lot of use out of that Blu-ray, but. The idea of all of these separate characters coming to being brought together, you know, the first 45 minutes are spent on that. And it's like, okay, all right, that's necessary. But once you've seen it, you know, when you watch it a second time, it's like, I just want to see them together, you know. Um, but I understand the necessity for it. But sure. it does, that aspect of it doesn't necessarily bear repeat viewings. Mm-hmm. Um, so skip those chapters. I don't do that. <laughs> Really, are you, are you, is your policy to, no matter how you feel about the beginning of a movie? If I'm watching a movie, then I'm watching the movie. Like, if, okay. if there's a specific scene that Purist. I want to see, then I will do that. Mm-hmm. But no, I don't... Uh, if I've committed to watching something, then that's what I'm going to watch. What if the scene you want to see is the first scene? Do you feel compelled to watch the rest of it? Uh, some t- even if it's not my intention, I will often be like let's just keep going. Um, let's see how this plays out. I've seen the first 10 minutes of raising Arizona probably 50 times. Hmm. And I've seen the whole movie maybe 10 times because I just want to see that opening montage of how they got to where they are in the movie, which is like 15 minutes long. It's like, it's 10 minutes before the the first credit, maybe 11 minutes before the first credit. Um, but the, uh, oddly enough, I've only seen raising Arizona once and I did not care for it. I think I might, you don't like oofs. That's why that? you don't like oafs. I don't like oafs. That's you why know, you don't like Bottle Rocket, another brilliant film. That's right. Yes. that Well remembered. And I like that you... Uh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm incensed by that fact. Oh, sorry. That that's why you don't like it. But you know what? I, I think I might have... Now that I know more about the Coen brothers, I think I might have more respect for it now and might find it funnier, but at the same Raising time... Raising Arizona, I yeah. assume you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I still don't like oafs, though. It's It really bothers me. Just, Do you like Laurel and Hardy? Uh, Those are oafs. I, I do, and I'm not sure why. I think three because Stooges? I, think be, I don't like the Three Stooges. Abbott and Costello. Costello's an oaf. Costello's an oaf, yeah. If you, that's the thing, is when you have, like, one, having the straight man makes all the difference. Like, if you have mm. somebody who is, he might be not very smart, but he definitely feels put upon by the oaf. <laughs> and it's like, oh, thank God, I have somebody voicing my problem. You With know? And that's, that's Oliver Hardy, and that's mm. uh, Bud Abbott. Um, whereas the Three Stooges, they were all oafs. Nobody was, you know, most Actually, it's funny, because I would smarter. call Hardy the oaf in that pairing. I would say that, uh, I would say that Laurel, Stan mm. Laurel, is an innocent. Yeah, but he's the one that, you know... 
He's the one that gets them in uh, another nice mess. Uh, <laughs> but uh, not another fine mess, by the way. Mm. That is a common misconception. But uh, Really? He only says another mess you've gotten us into? There's another nice mess. Another nice mess you've gotten us into? Yeah. That doesn't flow as well. Hey. History has corrected him. Indeed. Play it again, Sam. That's also a I thing know. that was never said. But, um, but yeah, so... Uh, but yeah, I feel like anybody who gets them into the trouble is the oaf. Okay. Um, whether they be angelic, like Stan Laurel, um, or just goofy, like Costello, uh, Lou Costello, right? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that's why I've ne- that's why I never got into Three Stooges. Even as a kid, I was like, because there's just three oafs. There's three oafs blaming each other. Oh, but it's so funny. Ugh, no, thank you. Hit him on the head, makes a bonk sound. Come on. No, thank you. I mean, t- let me tell you this, uh, side note, everybody, although I guess it's a side note to the side note. Um, I also, that just like pure shtick, like just pure gags with no, with no real context, um, is something I never got into. And for that same reason, I never liked Tom and Jerry ever. Hmm. I can watch Bugs Bunny all day long cause he talks and as he talks, he gets more of a personality, but like. When you think about it, like Tom and Jerry, like what's the personality? Well, one's a mouse and one's a cat. Would and, you uh, like a Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote? Because you you know what, though Coyote, uh, though uh, Wiley Coyote does not talk, he did later. He did later, but he often would like he would hold up signs, mm-hmm. and his actions implied like he really was thinking things through. The Roadrunner has no personality at all. You know, the Roadrunner is a MacGuffin, uh, <laughs> and. So that's the thing is like, I think Wile E. Coyote, like that show that those cartoons really only had one real character. Um, and though he was constantly foiled, I don't think you would ever say he's an oaf. He's simply hoisted by his own petard. Well, the anti roadrunner defamation league will be calling you later. I think he's a character, but what's the, what's his basis completely oblivious. I feel like he's oblivious to what Coyote is trying to do. Most of the time, yes. Okay. Uh, there are times when it's clear that the Roadrunner has uh, conspired to okay. hurt, or at least to get away. So he is a sure. thinking creature. For the most part, yeah, he's just he's just me- meeping down the road. Yes. Um, whereas a coyote is what he is. No, I'm just laughing at where we how we got here. I don't even know how we got. Now here. we're talking about Warner Brothers cartoons, which I think is wonderful. Sure, sure. It ain't split. Um, it sure isn't, but I'll tell you what is uh, the movie Split, which we are now going to continue mm. talking about. So I will mention, because we've been going for a while and wasting time on things that don't matter. Wait um, a minute. I mean, they matter very much, but maybe not to, me. to this conversation. Um, I did want to talk about the uh, the acting. I think the acting is uniformly very good. I really, I really like, um, uh, I want to make sure, Anya Taylor-Joy, who is also in The Witch, um, she's, a, know that. she's a very expressive actress and I think she does a really great job. Like that character, because she, she is active in a lot of ways, but she also doesn't give a lot. She doesn't betray a lot as far as how she's feeling. Um, and so, uh, it would be very easy for that character to be not, I, I mean, of course you're invested, especially once you find out like some of the stuff that ha- has happened to her, but she could kind of just be sort of a cipher. Mm-hmm. Um, but she isn't. Um, 
I'm really, I, I, a clear line is drawn between like her, her past and her present and her being just a, a pure survivor and the impact that that has had on her, that it means she has had to shut her emotions down a lot, but that doesn't mean she doesn't have them. Um, and I think Anya Taylor joy does a great job there. Uh, but obviously this is a showcase for James McAvoy. And I was really like, when I saw that trailer, I thought like, like, Hey, good for him for getting this thing. That's, that is going to showcase him. But I think this is going to be insufferable. And I think he's going to try too hard. Hmm. Um, but, uh, I don't think so. I think, I think the Hedwig character maybe is a little bit rough, maybe from a writing standpoint, but he does what he can, but I think he's great with Patricia and mm-hmm. he does a great job with her. Dennis really comes through. Barry comes through. Like each character definitely f- feels like their own thing. Um, and then when the beast shows up, he does a great job of creating a character that really isn't meant to be human in a lot of ways and seems to be just like screeching out its lines as though it is in constant pain. Right. Um, which is a, a big theme of the movie and of the beast, uh, character. And so I was really impressed by, by him. And I remember a lot of people last year, they were, you know, a lot of like online, uh, outlets were talking about like, Hey, you know, when talking about best actor, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't rule out, uh, James McAvoy because, and it's like, it is a great performance, but it's a bunch of supporting performances. It's not, hmm. uh, it's not a lead. Um, well, that's not fair because I, I'm I mean, not, it's, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but no, I it's just, just, but I, I don't know what to say about that because it's, it's, it's still the same actor and the same actor is performing as those separate and it's all the same character really just divided up into different names. I know. So I think, but if you want to look at lead as the one that has the arc, Hmm. then that is none of those characters and nor is it Kevin. Hmm. Then who's the lead? Her? Her. Okay. Yeah. So he, but you're saying that he could be, he could be nominated and you'd be okay with him being nominated as supporting actor. Sure. Yeah, sure. But at the same time, like if he had been nominated for lead, nobody would have had a problem with it. Like, how about this? Nominate him five times in the same category. He takes all five slots. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fair enough. That would be fun. I might actually watch the Oscars if that had happened. Do you not watch the Oscars? I think I have it on because I feel compelled because yeah. I live in LA. Yeah. Um, and I'm not one of these like contrarians or something that's like, oh, they should never have the Oscars or a, a, a ruse or whatever. Yeah. It's more like I, I think I get, I think I just get tired of the sameness of them every year. Yeah. And, and well, also. This past year was uh, pretty exciting. The end? Oh, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. And I did see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I actually had the, the Oscars on last year, so I saw that live. Um, but there's a, there's definitely a sameness, but I, I think it's, it's also because I get, I get too frustrated The the proportion of me getting frustrated at who wins or he, who is even nominated mm-hmm. is, is so great that it overshadows the enjoyment of watching yeah. whoever might win, um, or watching the show as a show. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I feel just too connected to it because I have feelings about who I would pick. Um, but then it's frustration at myself because let's be honest, now I feel like I'm laying on the psychologist's couch. Um, Dr. Fletcher. Um, I feel like that I haven't seen enough movies every year. I mm. feel like I, I'm always playing catch up. Sure. Um, I think you tend to see everything pretty much when it 
when it's available. I try, I try to. There's always a few that slip through the cracks. I think this is something has happened over the last few years where either it's a financial situation or a time situation or a, I don't care about what people are talking about currently at the top of the heap that I, I just go, well, I guess maybe I'll catch that if it wins, you know, as opposed yeah. to, oh, I want to see that because of that director or because of that actor. Right. I've, I used to be, I used to be like you, Tyler. And then at some point I became not like you. And I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying that mm. I kind of shifted away from needing to see everything. And so then I'm not as invested in it as a show. I'm more invested in it as a, well, the, the three or four independent films that I did see that are nowhere near the Oscars should have been considered. And then I get mad. Yeah, the well, what I'll say is like if I didn't have these shows, I would not feel so compelled. But um, and even then, there are some movies I'm like, sorry, can't make myself care about it. Yeah, I know a lot of people, a lot of other people are talking about it, but hey, that's why I have a co-host, um, <laughs> so right. that I don't have to see everything. But um, but I do try to see stuff that people are talking about often, good or bad. Like sometimes people are saying like this movie was so atrociously awful. I'm like, well can't can't pass that up the bland forgettable stuff no problem i can pass that up all day long but it's, it's something that that is exceptionally good or exceptionally bad the happening the ha- yeah exactly um so uh but i do want to to move on um i do think james mcavoy does a, a really great job and he's he's an actor that i think is is undervalued i think he's a very dependable actor um you know when you watch the uh like the X-Men movies and he played mm-hmm. like a young Professor X. Now admittedly Michael Fassbender got a lot of the press, which is understandable, but I do think that James McAvoy really brings a lot of a lot of depth and weight to uh to his character as well. Um so uh but I but we do need to move on. So the companion film as we have already uh, talked about is Michael Mann's Manhunter based on the novel Red Dragon. Uh, and it stars, among others, William Peterson, Joan Allen, Brian Cox, Dennis Farina, Tom Noonan, Stephen Lang. Uh, it's got a, a really good cast. Um, and I think I actually saw Manhunter before I saw Silence of the Lambs. Um, it did come out before Silence of the Lambs, but like I saw both of them when I was in high school, and they'd both long been since sure. long since been released at that point. Um, but uh, I had somehow heard about Manhunter, and I think I had heard. I was reading a book, and it talked about like, oh, uh, there was a little a little feature of like, oh, characters played by different actors, and there's the one you've heard about and the one you haven't. Mm. And so it was Hannibal Lecter, and they said like, oh, you remember the Oscar-winning performance by uh, Anthony Hopkins, but uh, but did you know that he wasn't the first? It was in, it was uh, it was Brian Cox, and I thought like, wow, that's interesting. Maybe I'll watch that one first. And I did, and I loved his performance. Mm-hmm. I love a lot of stuff about Manhunter. I think it is a beautifully conceived film yeah. uh, that you know reminds me of why I love Michael Mann so much. Um, he just puts so much thought and effort into his films. He doesn't do anything haphazard, and I don't always like his films, but he's he's often a guy that I find fascinating. And uh, and Manhunter, like his his desire to make that movie. After Thief, I think was really, but I think right before Miami Vice, like it's this odd thing that like this very grisly serial killer film, he saw the potential to make this very slick and cool in in a bunch of different ways. And every definition of that word is very slick and cool uh, procedural um, 
that does delve into the, the psychological, but not to the degree that, well, hang on. It delves pretty deep, but he's not interested, I think, in the visual messiness of the, the, the psychosis of these characters. Whereas if you look at Silence of the Lambs, like you're literally descending into a dungeon mm-hmm. anytime you got to go see Lecter. Um, and he's like, no, Lecter's just in this clean white cell and he is basically like a, a, a caged animal, but he's not uh, a James Bond villain or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I have tremendous affection for Silence of the Lambs. It's something that I've come to enjoy more as I've gotten older and just it's insanely watchable. Um, maybe more than it should be, honestly, given the, the content, but that's a, that's a value judgment made by me. But I think Manhunter is a film that I actually don't find incredibly rewatchable. It bears multiple viewings, but it's not a film I feel like I'm in the mood to watch Manhunter because it's, it is a film that I find, uh, a little bit, it's a little bit at a distance, but it's also a film that because of that, I find it more disturbing somehow. Um, and I do think that the character of Francis Dollarhide played by Tom Noonan is just so unknowable. And he just, just the look of him makes me so uncomfortable Yeah, that, uh, it's like, I don't want to spend time with him. And he was the most on the nose aspect of the entire movie. What you say this, the second he shows up, well, you, I guess the first time you see him, he's got that, yeah. whatever on his head. Yeah. But even then, it's super creepy. But then when you Son, see him... you got a panty on your head. <laughs> raising Arizona. Raising Arizona. Well You're welcome. Um, Tie it all together. Thank you so much. But then when you see him without that, and he's... Uh, I mean, he's, he's a little bit too creepy. I would not have cast him if it were up to me. Mm-hmm. Because he's so obviously a creepy guy who's, yeah. who should be avoided. And it, it frustrates me in movies where they cast someone like him to be the yeah. bad guy. And then the story requires that some woman you know, falls in love with him or has a relationship with him when any woman in their right mind would look at, well, she's ah, blind, she's blind, but even so, um, yeah. there's, there's a vibe about even the way he speaks, um, and the way he says things that makes you go, wait a minute, this guy's a little bit, not romantic, not, yeah. uh, he's cryptic and he's weird. Yeah. And is that the only reason they made her blind so that, so that, you know, we have that, we don't have to worry about that. Like, argument against the movie? No, I don't think so. Well, because she's blind in the book as well. Um, mm-hmm. and I think there's, there's a lot of things. I think he is attracted to her because a, she is attractive, but also like she won't see me. Hmm. Like he thinks he's an absolute monster cause he's got like the, the, the cleft lip, um, and was made to feel terrible about it when he was younger. Um, and so it's like, this is somebody who doesn't see that when they look at me. Meanwhile, that's all I see when I look at myself. Um, and so, and also I think it's just when she's in danger, it makes her more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, I think it's that, um, no, that's, that's very valid. I think it makes me think of other movies, anything from, uh, uh, city lights, mm-hmm. you know, the blind girl can't see that she's, a, that he's a tramp. Yeah. Um, all the way to mask who, oh, yeah. I don't remember if there's a blind person that in that movie, but, but, any approach to that character by another character requires that they don't see what's very, very obvious yeah. and off-putting. Um, yeah, so I get, I mean, in, in one sense, it's a smart thing, but on, on the other hand, there's no other narrative reason for her to be blind, as far as I can tell. Yeah. So it just makes it feel a little too easy. Well, and the way I look at it is that if she weren't blind, 
he would not have allowed her to be in his story. Hmm. You know, like admittedly she's very forward, but the only reason he allows her in is because of this fact. It's not happenstance. It's just the way things, and it's not the way things worked out. Like he saw something that allowed him to be what he wanted, what he so badly wanted to be. Right. And so he brought that into his life. He brought that into the story. And so would you call that sympathy? Like you're like the movie's trying to generate a little bit of sympathy for him by, Oh, undoubtedly. Yes. Um, and I think I never felt sympathetic for him. I, I have a hard time feeling sympathetic for him, uh, because he is, you know, such a monster and he's, his actions are established long before we see him. Mm -hmm. Um, and he is kind of, you know, he's this tall kind of gawky looking guy with this white hair. Um, but I, there are things, there are aspects about him I find fascinating. He's very soft spoken. And I think at one point she does mention that he avoids certain words, like he avoids S and it's because of his like cleft palate. She doesn't know that, but she took note of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like, he's a guy who has built his, uh, built everything about himself and his life. It's like, okay, I need to hide this thing about me as much as I can. But I also, it's never really mentioned, but it's just, if you look at his apartment, he's fascinated with art mm-hmm. and the way he dresses, like he, there's kind of a, a certain yuppie quality to him. Like he clearly is interested in intellectual pursuits, um, and maybe probably because he isn't and he is an intellectual, but I think also it's that kind of classic thing that if you are deficient in one way, you need to play up another. Mm-hmm. And it's like, people are going to look at me and all they will see is my lips. So, you know what? I will be interesting in other ways, or I will find solace in other things. Um, and I can, in, I can not, I don't really relate to him except I can understand that instinct. Um, and so, yeah, he's not, uh, remarkably, uh, sympathetic. There's a, there's a wonderful line that I didn't write all here, but, uh, uh, will when talking about him, he says, my heart bleeds for him as a child. Yep. Someone took a kid and manufactured a monster at the same time as an adult. He's, he's irredeemable. He butchers whole families to pursue trivial fantasies. Um, and, and Will is a guy who is, if anyone's going to sympathize, it's him because yeah. he has to put himself in, in the mindset. I love mindset. that moment. And Dennis Farina is kind of in the corner yeah, having just like gotten onto him for saying that he sympathized with him and he gives yeah. him that reason. There's no argument against that reason. Yeah. But, uh, Peterson says, do you have a problem with, with that approach or that, that philosophy? I forget exactly yeah. how he worded it. And he's kind of looking at the audience Yeah. because if we're not willing to see him as someone who is broken versus yeah. someone who is just pure evil, then maybe you have no business. Farina has no business being a cop yeah. or we have no business seeing a movie where good guys are versus bad guys. Cause you're just seeing things black and white, which is not yeah. fair. But then of course the movie is black and white and he is an evil guy yeah. and he has to be stopped. And William Peterson stops him and redeems his old feelings but I, of insecurity. But I do actually like that. Um, he is, he's not necessarily redeemable. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't like to apply the term irredeemable to anybody, but what I will say is like in the context of the film, like his, the character Reba, the blind girl played by Joan Allen, uh, her affection for him seems to energize him. And, and he feels like, eh, I don't think I'm going to keep doing this anymore. Hmm. Um, but then there's a moment where she, a coworker has driven her home. Right. And he kisses her. 
He doesn't kiss her. He does. He does in, in Dollar Hyde's mind. Oh. All he does is take an, an eyelash off her face. And then oh. you'll notice that like, then the lighting changes, hmm. the music changes, and Dollar Hyde sees like this kiss. You don't think that was real? I don't think that was real. Hmm. I think this was his mind completely sabotaging his happiness. But we haven't seen that device in the film up to that point. So how are you, how are you supposed to know that? I think the change in lighting. I think hmm. like stylistically it goes from, oh, they're just, it's, it's okay. nighttime. And, I, I buy that. You know, um, and also I think it fits with, with Dollar Hyde. Like he cannot, he, he cannot let himself be content. And like, and it's only ever a matter of time before the people that accept him will find something better. And so hmm. there it is. Um, and I think that's why she, cause that's the thing she feels gen- and when he is angry at her and accusatory, she does seem genuinely confused as to why. Whereas like if she had kissed somebody, but she's also kind of with him, I think she might have, she might address it. And say, like, I'm sorry that I did that. But she doesn't. She is completely in the dark, no pun intended, uh, about why he is doing what he's doing. And so I think that also kind of backs up that 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 is a, not necessarily a hallucination, but it's just like his perception. It could be what he imagines uh, Mm -hmm. happened. So it's, uh, so that's another thing that makes me feel sympathy for the characters that it doesn't mean that he he needs to be stopped, obviously, and that might mean he needs to be killed, but that this kid is, that this guy is, maybe that's where Irredeemable comes in. Like, he cannot be fixed. Yeah. You know? And even when good things, oh yeah, sorry, there's somebody who has like a little cart of like food, and they oh, walk down the is. street and honk this horn. I could use it's, some. Some food? Sure. Well, let's get some food after this. Just make a long this. point, and I'll just go away for a minute, and I'll come back. Okay. Well, I'm uh, no problem. I'm uh, <laughs> kind of a windbag. Um, now, now. But uh, but I do find um, I do find the character. In a way, I almost feel like the casting of Tom Noonan, and the visual quality. I feel like that's Michael Mann trying to make make sure the character isn't too sympathetic. You know, if you cast somebody who who just seems like a regular guy and he's got this cleft lip and he's doing these things and like, obviously we don't like what he's doing, but like, oh, this poor guy, you know, Norman Bates is very sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just like, oh, he doesn't mean to do this. I mean, obviously he needs to be stopped, but it's mother that's doing it. Like we make excuses because he's so likable. Um, whereas, and I think we could do this with somebody like Francis Dollarhide, which is why it's like, okay, well, let's make him a guy that we that we ourselves fall into the trap of judging visually, you know, which is something he is always worried about. So I think that there's a lot going on with the casting of Tom Noonan. I think he plays the character really well, especially like when you see him, you see how physically awkward he is, which is odd for a tall person. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong there. I know plenty of tall people that are, that are kind of uncoordinated or at least they were when they were growing up, but there's something like, a guy as t- as tall and physically imposing as him kind of shrinking when somebody wants to get kind of physical with him, I think is fascinating. Um, and yeah, I, I, it is a little bit on the nose in certain ways, but in other ways, I think it's trying to counteract what the story is doing naturally. Um, no, I get it. I, I, maybe this is why I didn't pursue casting as a career. Mm. Well, yeah. And I, I don't know if I would have also when you're Tom Noonan, like, 
what, what other parts are you going to get? <laughs> like, he plays the villain. He's played the villain in a lot of stuff. Well, look um, at him. Yeah, ex- just look at just him. Look he's, at a cle- he's clearly a monster. But I mean, honestly, I mean, if he, he, he would be wonderful casting as like Frankenstein's monster. Mm-hmm. In every sense of the word, including the, the sympathy. I think he can play that. There, that soft-spoken quality, if you listen to like interviews with him, it's, it's fascinating because he just seems like the most gentle yeah. person in the world. Is there a... I don't remember much about Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a long, long time. Is there any sympathy generated for... Jamie Gum? The counter, counterpart in that movie? <sighs> Not really. I mean, there's, there's, it's like, he clearly thinks that there's something wrong with him. He feels like he's not a a man and that the only way he can be what he wants to be, which is a woman is to do this way and like Mm. skin woman and make himself a woman's suit. Really? That's what I'd forgotten all that. Yeah. It's it's (laughs) horrendous. But, um, and I remember I was reading an article that talked about Manhunter versus Silence of the Lambs and talked about Francis, talked about the Tooth Fairy versus Buffalo Bill and that. The Tooth Fairy or, you know, Dollar Hide, that he he sees himself as so unacceptable based on things that have happened to him as a kid and that he wants to, he often talks about what he is becoming and he is becoming this thing that is not merely acceptable, but is elevated, you know, and how many people when feeling broken or wounded or less than, how many people would love to be like, wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if people looked up to me? Not merely if I was on their level, yeah. like you know, inspired awe. I think if I inspired awe, um, and not in an egotistical way, but like everybody wants to be admired. Um, and they so this person said like there's something very universal about what Dollar Hyde wants, but he goes about it in just this monstrous way, um, and the idea that he like kills these families, something that he did not have as a kid, or at least not a good one Mm -hmm. and that he doesn't have now, but like, and then he puts mirrors in their eyes when they're dead and just so that he can see himself through their eyes as acceptable. Like that's complex and pretty rough. And this person said like Buffalo Bill, like, yes, we we feel bad for him that like he doesn't feel comfortable in his own skin. So he needs to create Mm -hmm. a new skin but there's nothing particularly philosophical about that. It's, it's much more base. Whereas there does seem to be uh, a philosophy or some type of principle behind what dollar Hyde is doing. Mm. So, um, yeah, I do find him much more sympathetic than Jamie gum. And it could also be like speaking of on the nose casting. I love Ted Levine. I think he's a marvelous actor. Uh, but like that's a, you know, in one, like you just listen to that voice and it's like, oh, he's a, he's a bad guy. He's the killer, right? Yeah. Um, his voice used to, to tremendous effect in the film, uh, Joyride. Did you ever see Joyride? No, I didn't. Oh, it's marvelous. It is a marvelous film. Is that Paul Walker and, uh, Steve, Steve Zahn? Zahn? Yes. And it's directed by John Dahl, who is an unsung director of the, of the nineties and, and early two thousands. He still works, but he does a lot of TV now. I have a story. Can I break in? About John Dahl? No, about uh, Joyride. Oh, okay. I've never seen it, but I was uh, somewhere, and somebody that I didn't really know very well looked at me and said, hey, you look like that guy in Joyride. And so later, I saw a poster for, I'm like, wow, that's cool. They think I look like, you know, Paul Walker. (laughs) Turns out they thought I looked like Steve Zahn, which is not exactly, I mean, it's okay. Steve Zahn's still a good-looking guy. He's a good-looking guy, but he's not Paul Walker. So I was like kind of let down. I was like, oh, I look like, I look like the comic relief 
You should watch Joyride. It's actually, uh, he's huh. not merely the comic relief. Oh, is that right? I can lend it to you. I think you will enjoy it's it. It's up a on bit. the wall? It is. Um, and it is a really wonderful exercise right. in mood and a wonderful use of color. And, and I might see not, myself in it. And you might see yourself in it. Uh, and there's a lot of duel in there as well, by the way. Ooh. Like they are being, um, like duel. They're being uh, stalked by this trucker that we never see, but they do have a CB radio and there's Ted Levine's voice coming in uh-huh. and it's as horrifying as one would assume. Gotcha. Um, and he's also marvelous in Shutter Island. Do you remember Shutter oh, Island? Oh, yes. Who is he in Shutter Island? He's like, he's he's in the thing for a total of like seven minutes, but there's a scene where he's in a Jeep with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and he talks about like the animalistic nature of people and mm. he said like, He's like, now if I, he goes, if I decided to come at you, do you think you'd be able to stop me before I, before I ate your eyeball out? <laughs> and of course it's him saying it in that horrifying yes. voice. Uh, and it's, and it's really delightful. But, nice. um, but anyway, so, um, but yeah, Manhunter is a film that listeners, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It really is great. But one thing that I wanted to talk about is like in, in looking at the beast in split and Francis Dollarhide it's fascinating the stuff that they, the the way they approach life. I do see a lot of similarities there, because Kevin, the the body that all of these personalities uh, live in, um, he was abused as a child, and with each different type of abuse, like another personality was formed as a coping mechanism. Um, like if like he didn't like he wasn't allowed to make any mistakes. So suddenly this dentist guy who makes no mistakes and is very fastidious, like he shows up because he don't worry, I'll take it from here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Patricia is like, OK, I don't have any nourishing parents, so I'll just create one and I'll nourish myself. Uh, but then you have the beast who seems to come about from this idea of like just the like the wounds personified and this feeling of. Of kind of idolizing the wounded to the point uh, in the same way that like, you know, this is a weird analogy to make, but when you like anytime there's like a revolution, uh, against like the rich or royalty or something like that, it's always like, they don't know what it's like. They haven't lived my life. And so, you know what, not merely will I, you know, aspire to be them. I will actually say that they are worse and that I am better than they are and they deserve to be overthrown. And along those lines, the beast seems to think that as well as a coping mechanism. Like, and it speaks to the, the dollar head thing. Like I will now elevate myself above. And so there's this wonderful thing where he says, we are glorious. We will no longer be afraid. Only through pain. Can you achieve your greatness? The impure are the untouched, the unburned, the unslain. Those who have not been torn have no value in themselves and no place in this world. They are asleep. First off, I like that writing. Of course, it's bombastic, but I kind of love it. Sure. Um, partially because the beast is sort of like this cult leader within Kevin mm-hmm. uh, that the other that some other personalities really like and really follow, and they find a, a you know they find you know you know there's a certain type of populism in the beast. Now that I think about it, um, very populist bad guy. Uh, and then at one point, Dennis, uh, the Dennis personality says the beast is a sentient creature who represents the highest form of humans evolution. He believes the time of ordinary humanity is over. I hope this makes you feel calm. You will be in the presence of something greater. Um, and at one point the beast, when he is faced with, uh, what is, what is the character's name? Casey, 
when he is faced with her scars because she was abused as a child by her uncle um, in some very disturbing scenes. And like hats off to the guy who plays the uncle because he is required to do some pretty rough stuff yeah. uh, in the film. But when the beast is faced with her scars, he says, you are different from the rest. Your heart is pure. Rejoice. The broken are the more evolved. Rejoice. And it's just so... He speaks like a fire and brimstone preacher. He does. Very much so. Um, and it's... <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it's hard to be hearing that that horn honking while we talk about such <laughs> dark and horrible things. Um, but yeah, he reminded me very much of Francis Dollar Hyde, who at one point he when he, he talks about what he is becoming and he will become accepted and he will become higher than that. He will become the red dragon of the title. Right. And at one point he says, it is in your nature. He's talking to a guy that he's about to kill quite terribly. It is in your nature to do one thing correctly, tremble. And then he says, you owe me awe. Mm -hmm. And it's just like this really, and oddly enough, as as big and bombastic and as, in my opinion, unsympathetic as these ideas are, these grand ideas, I, I feel like I hear that and I see like the kid who has no power at all and is just made to feel like an absolute misfit that can do nothing right. And so, you know what? I will save myself. No one's going to defend me. I will defend myself. And in doing so, I will become this powerful, amazing thing that, and I will have earned it through my pain. And it's something that I feel like a lot of people, they might not, they, I say might, they, let's say likely, they likely won't go to these extremes, but this feeling of I am, I'm owed more or I'm allowed to do more, or I'm allowed to think differently because of the, the wounds that I've suffered. Here's the thing. If you look at Job, you know, he, he suffered, aside from Jesus, he suffered more than anybody mm -hmm. uh, in the Bible. And he got really upset with God about it, and God actually came back and you know, like God had tremendous faith in Job and, and has sympathy for Job, but he also says like, hey, you don't know like you make these demands of me as though you, you know, there's a line that Lecter says, you know, if one got, if one does what God does enough times, one will become as God is. And so like these characters that again, they're trying to elevate themselves to a place of power because they feel like those in power, maybe even including God did nothing to help them, which is something that I, I can't really relate to. I feel like, you know, given some of the stuff you've said on the podcast, I feel like you can relate. You might be able to relate to that, feeling of powerlessness more than, than I can. And I feel like a lot of people cannot relate to that. Um, but you know, when Job is talking to God, God is saying like, you don't know any of this stuff. Like, where were you when I created all this stuff? Like you are not at my level. You don't get to make demands of me. And we look at that and we think like, wow, God sure is callous. But then we also look elsewhere in the Bible and we see over and over again, the God has tremendous sympathy for those that are hurting. Um, and, and so that's something that, that I was thinking about in regards to this and in regards to, you know, myself and that I do think that there is a tendency that if somebody is a victim, that they should be allowed to do what they want and say what they want. And while I'm, I do think that we should cut victims 
a lot of slack. You know, so many movies, I mean, so many, uh, so many Batman villains and Batman, the animated series. And it's worth noting, like I just brought up super villains, you know, as the horde becomes, um, it's a very common thing. Like they have been cheated. They have been wronged and they choose to take it out on everybody around them. And they feel like they are owed something, you know, in the case of Francis Dollarhide, I am owed awe, the awe that I was never given as, as a kid. Um, it's like the dark version of entitlement. I think it is because I mean, typically entitlement is, makes you think of like somebody that feels like, well, because I'm rich or because I made it to this point in my life, because I am powerful, I deserve this, that, and this other thing. So I take those things because I, I am at this higher level. Right. This is like the other way around. It's like, um, an entitlement because I've, because I'm, I've never experienced those good things. I should now get my turn. Yeah. And it's like the dark, both both versions are obviously the extremes of just being content, yeah. you know, are looking around you and seeing that, you know, some people are going to uh, make it easier. Some yeah. people have to work harder. Some people are handed stuff. Some people work for that stuff. Whatever it is, it's like yeah. um, you can you can look at somebody's life story and see that it did come from a place of actual work yeah. of some kind. Whereas a person who is like the Beast or like Dollar Hyde, they're like, I deserve... I deserve uh, the opposite of what I have. Yeah. And how I'm going to get it is worse than what was done to me. Yeah. And so it's, it's without realizing it, because there, there's sort of a psychosis involved, there, there's no realization that, that they're actually hurting more people than they were hurt. Yeah. Even the person that hurt them hurt. Yeah. So um, it's it's never validated, you yeah. know, from, from either end of that spectrum. But it's somehow more fascinating just in terms of movies. It's fascinating to watch that kind of person try to achieve the level of respect that they feel like they deserve. It's, it's more yeah. cinematic, if you will. I mean, I'm thinking of even something like, uh, uh, Michael Douglas and, uh, falling down. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a guy who's like everything about his life has fallen apart and he's stuck in traffic just to top it all off. Mm-hmm. And so he's got to get across town. He's got a bat and he beats people up or he destroys convenience yeah. stores, whatever it is to make him feel, make himself feel more powerful than the events yeah. of his life will otherwise allow him to feel. And of course I can really relate to that movie much more sure. than I can something like dollar hide or, or, uh, the beast. These are, they, they just seem more extreme yeah. obviously, but but I mean, these characters and these motivations are all over cinema, and they're even the good guys. Yeah. At times, um, I'm. I mean, Batman is. That. Of course, there you go. It's a perfect um, example. Like we root for Batman to save the day every time. Yeah. Um, but even as much as we, as we uh, in movies show, the 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 thing that happened in his origin, mm-hmm. the origin of that of that uh, of Batman. Um. It almost doesn't matter. It, it's never going to be, we're never going to disallow him from doing what he's doing because he's always cast as the hero. Um, and a dark hero, an anti-hero, but he's still the hero in any situation you put him in. Yeah. Um, and is, is that okay? I mean, is that... It is, I mean, it's definitely, it's always worth discussing like vigil, vigilantism um, because ultimately it's people saying like, those in power are not going to protect us. So I will, I'm going to elevate myself Dirty to a Harry, place of death power. Wish. I mean, yeah. it's all over the place. Um, but what I think, you know, before they decided to make superheroes, like only 
a few inches away from super villains, uh, by mm-hmm. making them incredibly dark, which is a thing I like up to a point. Um, you know, the difference with Batman is that he doesn't kill people despite having loved ones killed, you know, having loved ones be killed by somebody else. Like he never feels like I am owed that and I will decide who lives and dies, you know, and even, even with somebody like the Joker who, who does kill people. And if he were to die, people will live. But like Batman's like, that is not my, it's not my place to decide that. And, and Spider-Man I would say is another instance where, you know, he is, robbed of something and is given great power. And he says, with great power comes great responsibility. Super villains. And I would say dollar hide and the beast would say, I have no responsibility to anybody but myself. You know, I am above them now. Like I have been given, I will take great power. People will owe, they owe me awe and I owe them nothing. I have been hurt too much and now it's my turn. And I think, and that's one of the things that I do love about Batman, the animated series is that we see so many villain origins of people that have been, who in some have taken, have had a lot of things taken from them. Usually their identity. It could be a family member. It could be a job. It could be respectability, whatever it is, the thing that they say, like, this is who I am. And then somehow it gets unfairly taken away from them. Um, and then they say, you can't do that to me. So you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to lash out at, at this person and usually the society that allowed them to do that. Right. And Batman doesn't do that. You know, he never goes to the extent that they do. And so like they take a, uh, an easier path, one that might be logistically difficult, but they take an easier path because they're just giving in to every whim. Whereas he doesn't because his whim is probably like this person deserves to die. So I'm going to kill them, but he doesn't give into that mm-hmm. because there's something hot. There's a higher principle than there's what good he in him. wants. There's good in him. Exactly. Even Darth Vader can be redeemed. Yeah. Even though he killed all those younglings. He did do that. Didn't he? He sure did. But then sort of dollar or hide or whatever his name is. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, now, I recognize that as I, as I say this, there might be people that think like, oh, well, don't you have any sympathy with, with victims of abuse and loss? And the answer is, of course I do. Absolutely. Um, and, would peop- and people would say like, well, how can you look at the rich people who feel entitled and poor people who, or, you know, abused people who haven't gotten anything and say like, oh, well, they're two sides of the same coin. It's like, no, it's what they then do and their attitude and this feeling that I'm owed something at someone else's expense and I will take it from them. That is when things start to get a little bit dicey. And what I will say is that we've got a bunch of Bible verses to read and then I will wrap up, uh, making a point about Job. Um, but what I will say is that like, yes, when, when questioned, uh, God, like, took it back to Job, but ever like so many places in the Bible, it talks about God having sympathy for those that have been hurt and those that have been cheated and those that are, you know, well, we'll get to basically all of this stuff. Um, so here we go. Uh, I will start off with Psalm 34 verses 17 and 18. 
The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save the, saves those who are crushed in spirit. I've said that one before. Some of these are going to be repeated. Um, Psalm 147, verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Uh, Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets uh, uh, who were before you. So I want to, the word rejoice is going to pop up a couple times here. And the beast said rejoice mm -hmm, um, because of this re this revolution that he is bringing. Um, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 10. Do you want to take that? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Uh, another Second Corinthians is 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Uh, first set... First Thessalonians 5, verses 14 and 15. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. All right. And then lastly, and I've said this one on multiple episodes, but it's a thing that I find very... Uh, uh, very encouraging. It's Revelation 21 verses 3 through 7. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. So we have a combination of things here. We have promises. We, we have first the statement that God is with those that are brokenhearted, those that have been wounded. There is the promise that those people, there's the assurance that those people are blessed, the promise that someday they will be healed and they will be alongside God. But in the midst of this, there is also like, hey, work to encourage others. Don't pay back wrong for wrong. Um, strive for full restoration. Uh you know, don't, it's, I, I feel awful saying this, but like, don't be so focused on what was taken from you. And 
it, it could be possible that a lot has been taken from you. Um, could be that everything has been taken from you like Job. It could be like that everything has been taken from you like Job, yes. But what I will say, and this is the note we'll be ending on, is that we are not supposed to be like Job, even when we feel like Job. We are supposed to be like Jesus, who also had everything taken from him and did nothing to deserve it um, and went through some really horrible things and then died. And when people talk about death, and it's like, well, that's not so bad. Um, but you also have to understand that Jesus, being man and God, also felt a connection with God and God had to disconnect in that moment because of what Jesus was taking on himself at that moment. So imagine feeling that level of disconnect with God creator of all things and lover of all things. And like that's, that is a type of death that we don't understand and the type of death we don't really talk about. That is a hellish type of death. The second death is, uh, it says somewhere in here that I think I might have cut out um, or stopped before I got there. Um, and so like, you know, Jesus was experiencing all these terrible things and much has been made of the fact that at any moment he could have like called a thousand angels and saved himself. He could have said, no, 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 you guys, you are not going to do this to me. You, the only, let me take a look at this. You can only do one thing correctly. And that is tremble. You owe me awe, but he doesn't. He goes to the people that are hurting him and he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you know, and so I want to try and I have no idea, uh, if anybody listening to this feels this way, uh, I imagine you're not feeling exactly like Francis Dollar Hyde or the beast. Um, but you might feel extremely wounded and very alone and feeling like nobody understands and it's possible nobody does understand, but the idea of being alone and separate from the thing that you love so much is something that Jesus did understand. And even in those moments, he said, it, it, it's not about me. Of course, it would be very much about him. But right now, I want to forgive the people who really don't know what they're doing. Um, if they did, they wouldn't be doing this, but they don't. And here we are. And so, you know, I encourage you, uh, those of you who maybe have been hurt in some capacity, whether you are kids or as an adult, it could be any number of things. It could be, you know, loss of a, of a loved one, not that the person was even necessarily taken from you, but maybe they got sick or something like that. And so nobody's really to blame except the universe or whatever. Um, or maybe somebody actually did hurt you. Um, I don't know what that is like. And so I'm not going to tell you how to feel. Um, but what I will say is that, uh, you know, God is with you. He loves you and through, and Jesus understands w what you're going through and the feeling of like, this is in no way fair. Um, and, uh, and someday all things will be made right. It is in many ways, it can feel frustrating that it is not up to us to make things right, but it also, frees us of a, of a certain degree of responsibility that like there is no justice except what I make, you know? And so, 
that's some pretty complex stuff and some pretty heavy stuff. No better way to end Halloween times than, <laughs> than with uh, some complex ideas. But, um, and so I said we'd be ending, but I also I realized I've been talking for a while. Um, Robert, what's, what's your thought on any of this? And if you, if you have nothing that you want to contribute, then that's fine. Well, a thousand things go through your mind yeah. uh, listening to what you're saying and uh, you know, reading those verses in the context of having talked about stories where people are just brutally abused. Yeah. Um, either that's the way the person is meeting out their vengeance or their justification in life. Um, or they are, uh, they are someone like William Peterson's character who is dealing with a, a kind of loss himself. Um, there's, there's just a, it's a hard leap to go from the verses that we read to, uh, yeah, God will take care of it. Or, yeah. you know, it's just a, it's a huge thing. And anyone that's experienced losses much less even than these movies um, can still feel that, 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 um, that struggle yeah. to, to be in the midst of that feeling of loss, of having been wronged by the universe or by a specific person, um, dead or alive. Mm-hmm. And then to hear, oh, God will take care of it. God is, yeah. um, God is just... Um, just be kind to one another. There's a a reward for you in heaven. Yeah. I'm like, even though I myself have had losses and have worked through those losses through counseling or just through good friendships or whatever it is, or a great marriage, whatever it is, um, I still, and, and I feel like I've gotten to a point where I'm beyond those feelings of entitlement, of negative entitlement. Yeah. Um, I still read those verses and I go, come on, really? Yeah, it's like how am, I, how am I supposed to work? How am I supposed to like act on this? The only thing I can say to that, since I do still feel those feelings, is that it, it literally and truly and really is a process, just like any other thing that is good in life. Yeah, it's a process where you, the first thing you have to do is just acknowledge that you're not in control, mm-hmm. that things happen that are out of your control. Um, there is a natural, normal human feeling of wanting to make that right yourself. Yeah. But to act on that uh, and letting that become your all-consuming all thought is only detrimental to yourself. Yeah. And the alternative to that is to at least piecemeal, if not whole hog all, all at once, is to give it to something or someone else yeah. or somewhere else. And in our case, in this podcast, and as far as Tyler and I are concerned, that is God. Mm -hmm. And it it is the comfort that the scriptures offer. It's the comfort that our own experiences in good times and less bad times uh, have given us to then look at the terrible things, the loss of, you know, a father Mm -hmm. or the loss of uh, a child in the womb. Any of these things are like horrible, um, undeserved, unasked for, uh, certainly unwelcome things in your life. Everyone experiences something like these things and everyone is going to have their own individual um, response to it based on their, well, their experience. Um, But there's, um, what we're trying to say is these verses are indicative of things that we ourselves have have, uh, have learned yeah. in life via our own losses. And it's, it's never easy. And my, my medication has completely dried out my mouth, which is why I'm smacking. I apologize. <laughs> um, so, so that's, that's what I would say to that. And I, I, I can recall when I was in college 
and uh, I was still kind of really hurting from the terrible things that my dad had done to my family. Mm. I, I remember, this is kind of funny, uh, looking back on it and just saying it out of context, but I, I memorized huge swaths of Hamlet. Hmm. Not because I wanted to learn Hamlet, but because I was reading it because I connected to it so much, which is this desire to completely eliminate that which has invaded your life and has yeah. ruined it. Um, in the case of Hamlet's his uncle, but to me, that was really his father's, his new father. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm like reading Hamlet, just ingesting it and watching every version of it and also and memorizing it because I connect to it so much. It's like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if that guy just wasn't on planet Earth anymore? Yeah. Well, it took decades, you know, to get through that. It was only like maybe, what, three or four years ago? And it was actually the podcast that I mm-hmm. told my, um, my testimony about. Um, it was only after that that I actually sought a lot of help and have come a long way. So all that to say... I know those feelings and I know how ridiculous a lot of scripture sounds in the face of that. But there is goodness and I really need a drink of water. I apologize for the smacking. Um, But I think that's all I had to say, uh, honestly. Yeah, I think I think emphasizing that it is it is a process. It's so easy um, even for me to say like, well, you just do this. Well, as we know from a recent Minnesota of mine, there's a lot of stuff I forget to do on a regular basis, yeah. or I remember and I just don't do it or I do it poorly as far as implementing scripture in my life so that I am not so miserable. Um, you know, contentedness is a, a thing to strive for and a thing that I would say is virtually impossible to actually attain, uh, being human beings as we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so I, 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 I appreciate your, your honesty in saying like, this looks like the Bible is very out of touch (laughs) It does with, with like human experience. Um, and what I, and so like, all I can really say, all I can assure you is that it's not, uh, but that, you know, it's going to, in some cases, it's a daily thing. It's a daily giving up of the things that have been done to you that you can't really do anything about. Now, if it's, if it's about actual justice, if it's about like, Oh, somebody, you know, the police need to be called. Of course, by all means. Yes. Um, but if it's about enacting justice on your own and even then like a cosmic justice, like I'm going to take it out on the world, then yeah, that's, that can be troublesome because when it comes right down to it, even, even if you are a hundred percent sure that you know what was, what's wrong, you are still limited. You still have your own perspective and you might not know the whole story, which is why we do need to trust God. You know, we talked about this a few weeks ago with Reed in which we talked about uh, death note that like hmm. we, we're so sure that we know if this happens, the world will be better mm-hmm. and, and everything will be set right. But we are very limited people. And by the way, we tend to have a personal stake in things. Um, and so, you know, not merely is vengeance up to God, but also justice is up to God. And we just need to remind ourselves that there will be justice uh, in, in the long run and sometimes even in the short run, which is, you know, a a very fortunate thing. And sometimes we don't always get it. Um, but it is going to require like a daily giving over and a daily prayer and maybe even just talking to people. It could be a therapist or a friend and just saying like, I don't want to let go of this because 
it's so wrong what was done to me or what happened to me. Why would I want to let that go and just move on mm-hmm. with my life? How could I ever move on? Um, and the thing is, the idea is not necessarily to get rid of it. That's why I wanted to incorporate the verses that say, like, encourage one another. And and let's see, I want to make sure I got this right. Um, strive for full restoration. That could be of you. That could be of a, of a broken relationship. Or it could be of other people. Like That could be just uh, simply the grieving process, which yeah. any d- disaster in your life requires yeah. as part of that process. So, you know, it's... It's going to, and it's going to look different. It's going to look logistically different for everybody. And so, um, I would just encourage you to like, keep praying, talk to people who know what you've been through and, uh, and are willing to listen, uh, to whatever you might be feeling. That's the other thing. Like going back to Job, Job's friends were not willing to listen to what he had to say. They had very specific things like, well, what about this? What about this? You know, I'm not saying that like, that you are not allowed to feel the things that you feel. Um, just that you are not allowed to kill entire families. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, more than one lesson is coming out very much in favor. Sorry. Against, oops, hang on against killing entire families Mm -hmm. to make yourself feel better. I approve this message. Okay. Thank you. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I hope that this was in some way encouraging. I, again, I don't know what any of you are, are going through, but I'd say statistically, some of you are going through or have gone through deep pain and wounds and you are still healing. And maybe this is frustrating to you. If so, then uh, I totally understand. Um, sometimes the Bible with its with its promises can seem so irrelevant to, to our lives. But, um, you know, aside from just continuing to, to pray and and give things over to God, which again is a very conceptual idea. I wish I could, I could give you more assurances beyond what the Bible already does, but I can't because I'm still in the midst of this. Mm -hmm. So not to imply anybody has done anything terrible to me. I just mean I'm in the midst of life. Sure. And so my understanding only goes so far. But anyway, so, all right. I think that is where we will end it. Um, Thank you, everybody, for uh, listening to this episode. Thank you for getting through all of Halloween times. I'm sure you barely made it. It was terrifying. Um, But uh, next week we'll be, uh, Josh will be back with a... uh, We'll be talking about, I think, An American in Paris, um, Best Picture 1951. So we'll be getting back into that. Um, So, yeah, thank you, everybody, for listening. Robert, thank you so much for being here. You got it. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.